Welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM. This show is what happens when two biologists isolate together and need to find something to do with their time other than meticulously studying the behaviour of their cat. I'm Ellie. And I'm Andrew. And if you've listened to us before, you'll know that this is a COVID-free zone. We bring you the best science news we've found over the last couple of weeks that has nothing to do with the pandemic. Yes, we have lots of other stuff to talk about, which is far more pleasant. Like, did you know that today, which is the day before this goes out, is International Beaver Day? Isn't that something nice to take our minds off the pandemic? Absolutely. Everybody loves a beaver. Do you know any beaver facts you can share with us? Well, I'm just, I was just saying, actually, I'm disappointed that this wasn't one of the questions. I knew it was International Beaver Day today. You don't actually know that it's not one of the questions because you never look at the quiz. True, but I'm just assuming you wouldn't give me such an obvious spoiler. I would not. I would not. I'm too cruel. You're not that kind. (laughs) We love beavers, though. Beavers, ecosystem engineers. Yeah, absolutely. Good at recreating wetlands, habitat for lots of other species. I have some beaver chippings in a drawer downstairs, yeah, that I collected from Finland. Oh, that's a fun little thing. So they're wood, essentially. Basically, yeah, like bits of a stump that a beaver had gnawed at. Can you imagine being a beaver and knowing that somebody had just taken your, like, you know, paper shavings away with them? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like just picking up someone's leftover food, yeah, but then just, just keeping it. When you put it like that, it's kind of creepy. A bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. Have I got a problem? I think you got a problem. I think we should get on with the show. We should get on with the show. Science of the Week. Well, it's that time of week again where we find out... Has Andrew been paying any attention to the news? Absolutely not. (laughs) As per usual, apart from International Beaver Day, is there anything during this week that you've kind of thought, oh, that's a good piece of science news. I'm going to retain that in my head. There was one thing, but I've forgotten what it was. I remember, oh, no, I remember what it was. I think it's a bit niche. I don't think you're going to have this as a question. What is it? But I thought, well, I'll let you know at the end of the quiz. Okay, okay. Well, if it comes up and you actually know the answer, then I'll realise it's that thing. I'll do a klaxon. Okay. (laughs) Can we have like a little taster of the klaxon? Yeah, I'm thinking something kind of QI-like, like sort of whoop, whoop, whoop. I was hoping for something zoological, actually. Oh, okay. Um, Like, you know, we could do like a Or a sort of... Well, that ends the animal sounds portion of today's (laughs) programme. On with the quiz. Number one. At the end of March, what Armageddon level catastrophe did we find out that we're safe from during our lifetimes? Uh, Is it another meteor strike? It is. When you say another, are you still like reeling from the one that killed the dinosaurs? No, I just feel like this is the sort of circular news story that goes around every couple of years. The sort of another meteor that NASA are mildly worried about, but not really worried about. Oh, sure. You know, just dump all over my question. Don't worry about it. Yes, it's the impact by the Apophis asteroid. Apophis was on NASA's watch list because they identified that it could potentially impact the Earth in 2029, 2036 and 2068. So the first two of these had already been ruled out, but until recently there was, you know, still some concern around 2068. But following recent flyby on 5th of March, scientists have been able to predict its path more accurately and rule out an impact in 2068 as well. That is good news. And I'm guessing by the spacing of those years that the next one is sort of going to be maybe 2080, 2090 something. So we've only got to rule out one more and then I'm going to consider myself definitely safe. Well, no. So they now say it won't impact Earth for at least another 100 years. Oh, that's fine. 
What's super cool, though, is that on its close fly past in 2029, it will come close enough to the Earth that people in the Eastern Hemisphere, so that's much of Europe, Asia, Africa, Australasia and the islands of Oceania, will be able to see it with the naked eye. Wow. Without any concerns that it's, you know, going to smash straight into us in a fiery death blaze, Hmm. which is optimal. Yeah, very cool. Do you know why it's called... Apophis. Is it because you're really struggling to pronounce it and uh, they just wanted to make this tricky for you? Well, okay, the reason why I'm struggling to pronounce it is because some people pronounce it with the stress on the first syllable and some people with the second syllable. And I'm a little bit undecided as to where I sit. So Apophis or Apophis. Or Apophis. Or Apophis. <laughs> I'm going to go with Apophis. Okay. Do you know why? No. Well, Apophis is the Egyptian god of chaos and evil, personified by a serpent, which I think is a bit rude on snakes. But this would make sense on its own, right? It would sure be pretty chaotic if this thing hit us. But actually, there's another layer. Cue me doing my other layer hands that nobody can see. Apparently, two of the co-discoverers of the asteroid, David Tholen and Roy Tucker, are fans of the TV programme Stargate SG-1. Did you ever watch that? No. No idea, actually. I remember when I was young, it was on Sky One, and like I would just be a bit annoyed when it was on instead of The Simpsons. That was my <laughs> biggest connection to Stargate SG-1. But anyway, in Stargate, apparently there was this recurring alien villain called Apophis, who was a threat to civilization on Earth. So perhaps the asteroid is named after him. Oh. In summary, Apophis is not coming to wreak chaos on us for at least another hundred years. And I personally don't plan to live that long. So really, that's our great grandkids problem to deal with. But it might not even be on a collision course then. And by that time, they'll probably just be able to, you know, go out there and nuke it anyway. So happy days. Number two. Now this is a listener submission. Oh. Mm -hmm. How can campers in national parks help to reduce nest predation on endangered birds? Is this in the UK? This study is not from the UK, but the message is kind of universal. It's not something to do with, I don't know, chasing off foxes and feral cats. No, it's predation by birds on birds. Ah, okay, so raptors or owls or cool crows. Birds. Yeah. Chasing crows? <laughs> no, stop leaving out so much food. Oh, yeah, that's pretty obvious, actually. Yeah. Our listener, Sagra, got in touch to tell us about the paper that this result was in. The paper by Brunk et al. was out at the end of last month, and it's a really cool study. So basically, we know that humans have a huge direct negative effect on a lot of wildlife. But with some species, we can actually increase their numbers by providing them with a reliable food source. This might sound like a good thing, but the fact that you're nodding shows you know it's not. If the species that are getting a boost is a generalist predator, then all the extra food will help their numbers to increase so that there will basically be more of them to predate on the nests of more endangered specialist feeding species which aren't able to take advantage of the human food left around. Now, this is the case in parklands of central California where lots of people go camping. And when they go camping, they leave bits of food around and a generalist predator, the Stellar's Jay, hoovers it all up and is able to reach really high population densities because essentially its population isn't limited by food because it has lots of munch lying around. Now this is all good for the jays but then the jays eat the eggs from the threatened seabird the marbled murrelet which by the way is such a cute name. 
That's marbled, adorable. Marbled murrelette. What? What is that? I've never heard of it. It's a seabird. Ah. So with jays doing so well, their numbers increase, and then there are more of them to eat the eggs of the marbled murrelets, which then have really bad nesting success. So California State Parks started an initiative to educate people on not leaving food around, as well as having wildlife-proof bins so that the sneaky jays couldn't break into them. And you know what corvids are like, right? You have to have actually good wildlife-proof bins. Yeah, they've got to be got to be fortresses to keep the corvids out. Exactly. So this study by Brockatal looked at what effect these measures had on the jay population. Like, do these initiatives actually work? And they found that, yes, they do. After implementation, the jays eat less human food and there was a lower density of jays per hectare. So basically, these measures could actually have a really positive effect on the marbled murrelet population without any extreme actions like culling jays. So I guess the moral of the story is when you enjoy nature, leave nothing but footprints, which is very cheesy, but very true. So thanks for the suggestion, Sagara. Yeah, that's awesome. Number three. What process have Google, BMW, Samsung and Volvo called for a moratorium on this week? Uh, some kind of mining? Yes, work with that. Gold mining? No. Uh, copper mining? Cobalt well, okay, mining? When, actually, when I say no, I'm saying no because I know what you're thinking of. But actually, it is mining for all the things you've just mentioned. Okay, so rare earth metal mining. Yep, I'm doing a, a signal. A <gasps> deep down, sea mining. Deep sea mining. Yes, for all those metals you just mentioned. Yep. It is, it's deep sea mining. So these four big companies have joined calls from a diverse range of actors, including NGOs like the WWF and Greenpeace, and lots of scientists to halt plans to mine metals like cobalt, copper and nickel from the deep sea floor. These are very big and unlikely sounding names to add their support to the call for the moratorium because i mean one of the biggest drivers of plans for deep sea mining is the need for these metals to create batteries that go in it's mainly electric cars and smartphones and here you have car manufacturers and smartphone designers saying wait a minute let's pause the mining until we have more evidence yeah because i mean that's really really good news but i think it's also just very sensible because one of the points which actually was raised in the book that we had as an isolation recommendation a couple of weeks ago which was the brilliant abyss by helen scales absolutely yeah one of the points that she raised was that technology always adapts and so just because some of these metals are used now and we think that some places in the deep sea might be good sources of them it doesn't mean that they're necessarily always going to be used in the future it doesn't mean that they have to be used in the future. Technologies might happen to move away or actually deliberately move away from using them and we might be able to find more sustainable options than uh, going and kind of destroying the pristine habitats at the bottom of the ocean. Well, this is the problem, right? So the biggest issues with deep sea mining are essentially that we don't have enough evidence about the exact effects on the ecosystems on the seafloor and how quickly they could actually recover but the evidence that we do have suggests that it could be absolutely catastrophic. So opponents to deep sea mining say that as well as obviously physical damage from the mining process, deep sea mining could potentially harm the deep sea habitats through noise, light and sediment pollution. And deep sea life cycle processes are really slow and not used to human disturbance. So they're just not resilient to it. They're not evolved to need to be resilient to it. So any recovery would potentially take thousands of years. And basically they say that we just don't have enough evidence yet of what that effect of deep sea mining will be on biodiversity, which, I mean, I'm sure like you and I will agree is important for its own sake. 
but also it's really important for human livelihoods in general. You know, there are people around the world who rely on fish stocks for their food supply. And we're not talking about just, you know, big scale fisheries. We're talking about people living on coasts who just use it as a subsistence. Yep. And even if those are shallow sea species, they're fed by nutrients which are often brought up from the deep. Exactly. And so disrupting disrupting what's going on down there could have big scale knock-on consequences. And you mentioned The Brilliant Abyss by Helen Scales. And this is something that she sort of talks about in her, her book, which, I mean, it's something that I hadn't hugely thought about, actually, until I read that. But it really puts it into perspective. The, the deep sea floor isn't lifeless. It's teeming with some really fascinating species. And there are so many of them that we just haven't even discovered yet. Yeah. And, it, and it's also the one place on the planet where large tracts of it are, are still completely untouched by humans. And it's it's sort of the last place that we've got that is in many ways completely pristine. And so it would just be such a shame to go and kind of trash it in the same way as we've done everywhere else on the planet. Mm. But you know what's interesting? There are actually proponents of deep sea mining. So obviously the mining companies, you know, Kelsapris, but also some scientists. So their arguments are that if we're going to meet our targets to move away from fossil fuels, then we need to switch to electric vehicles. And that's going to need cobalt, copper and nickel, amongst other metals. And we're going to run out of those from terrestrial mining. Now, you've kind of already said some counter arguments to that. But these proponents of deep sea mining also sometimes point out the fact that mining on land in many cases comes with terrible human rights violations for the workers and the residents in the area. I mean, that's definitely something that needs to be fixed, whether deep sea mining happens or not, because deep sea mining won't stop land mining. So to me, that's not really a sensible argument. If your issue is human rights, then put your resources and power behind working to secure those rights for workers and indigenous people, because land mining isn't going anywhere fast. Yeah, I mean, that's that's about setting up the correct financial structures and anti-corruption agencies to ensure that people get paid properly for their work and they have proper health and safety protections. And yeah, that, that's, that's got nothing to do, like, there's no inherent problem with the mining for human safety. It's about having the structures in place to protect the people who are doing it and having workers' rights. Yeah, so in my opinion, BMW, Google, Volvo and Samsung have made a good call here. Yeah, definitely. Number four. What astronomical event caused the birth of the Amazon rainforest? Wow. Um, Throwing your curveballs this week. Big topics. Uh, just just mashing them together as well. Bit of, yeah. bit of biology and geology, maybe, and, and astronomy all at the yeah. same time. It's all a bit spicy this week. I, I have no idea. Oh, uh, okay. Hang on. Is it something to do with, like, a change in how much energy the sun was giving off that changed the Earth's climate dramatically and enabled a rainforest to grow? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but nice try. It was a long shot. It was the asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs. Oh, okay. So I realise that this is becoming an asteroid-heavy quiz. (laughs) But I'm always open about the fact that my favourite topics are animals and space, so you can't be that surprised. So we know that 66 million years ago, an asteroid hit the Earth in the Yucatan Peninsula in what is now Mexico and almost certainly caused the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event that killed off 75% of biodiversity on Earth, including all of the non-avian dinosaurs. Glad you put the word non-avian in there. I know. Obviously. Obviously. Because otherwise you're going to go, actually, actually, you could say that birds are in fact dinosaurs. Well, they are. (laughs) There's no good about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's just the thing that ornithologists say to make their study system sound cooler. Um, actually, no, I take that back. When you see a cormorant, they are dinosaurs. Yeah. They are not even the descendants of dinosaurs. They are just dinosaurs. And is it a coincidence that seven-year-old me was obsessed with dinosaurs and then eight-year-old me was obsessed with birds? No. They're the same thing. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're being scientific about this. (laughs) Well, a study released at the start of this month by Cavallo et al. in the journal Science suggests that it also massively changed the structure of the vegetation in the area and gave birth to the Amazon rainforest as we know it today. By examining fossilised pollen and leaves from just before and just after the asteroid impact, the researchers could see that prior to the impact, the rainforest mostly consisted of ferns and coniferous trees with open canopies. But after the impact destroyed the vegetation, what grew back was dominated by flowering plants and trees, technically known as angiosperms. And these were densely crowded to create closed canopies where little light could reach the forest floor. Now, except for areas which have been deforested by humans, this is what the Amazon rainforest looks like today. They think that there are three potential reasons for why this kind of change would happen because of the asteroid. Any ideas? Well, I was thinking is the simple one just the fact that actually it took out the vegetation that was there and different vegetation was better at colonising rapidly afterwards. So it's, it's less a case of changing the environment and more a case of just removing the competition that enabled a different community to develop. Actually, that's kind of quite similar to a couple of their hypotheses. So they've got three potential reasons and they're not mutually exclusive. So firstly, the asteroid killed the dinosaurs, which would have previously trampled through the forests and flattened the vegetation, and that would have stopped a thick, dense canopy from forming. Mm. And ferns like these kind of ever-changing habitats where gaps are created and light reaches ground level. So that's kind of what you're saying, right? Different plants are more competitive afterwards, but for a slightly different reason. Yeah. And then secondly, before the impact, they can see from the fossilised pollen that coniferous trees were very dominant, but not particularly diverse in terms of there weren't comparably a huge number of species of coniferous trees. So they would have been much more vulnerable to extinction than the angiosperms, which were much more diverse before the impact. So basically, if you have lots of species, there's more chance that some of them will be able to cope with the catastrophe. And it looks like this is what happened to the angiosperms, those flower-bearing plants and trees. So that's a little bit what you were sort of getting at there. And the third one is before the impact, the soils were likely quite nutrient deficient and conifers cope pretty well with this. So it would have given them a competitive advantage having these like unfertilised soils. But the impact will have created a huge amount of ash to fall And this will have fertilised the soil, giving flowering plants, which are much more competitive in fertile soils, an advantage. Mm. So those are a few little hypotheses of how this might have happened. So there you have it. The asteroid impact 66 million years ago. Bad for dinosaurs. Bad for insects, they found as well. Decreased their diversity. Bad for general biodiversity, to be honest. But great for the flowering rainforest. Yeah. And the mammals, of course. Obviously. (laughs) Of which we are two. Yeah. And Suki is another one. The best. (laughs) Number five. What was recently found preserved inside a 385-year-old book in a Cambridge library? 
Cacao, cacao. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you went with my klaxon. Thank you. It was easier to do on the spur of the moment. Um, a small tortoiseshell butterfly. It was. It was a small tortoiseshell butterfly. What can you tell me about small tortoiseshells? A few fun facts. Uh, they're one of the few species in the UK which overwinter as an adult. That is a fun fact. Yeah. Do tell me more. Well, essentially, they're. It tends to be the larger species that do it. So when when it gets cold, they they go and hunker down somewhere sheltered and and essentially go torpid and just and and hibernate and then they wake up in spring and start flying around again. So you're um, telling us that a small tortoiseshell is actually not a very small butterfly. No, it's actually a pretty large butterfly, but to. smaller than the large tortoiseshell. I mean which that is makes sense. Bigger and substantially rarer in the UK. Well, you know what's even rarer than that? Finding one trapped in a really old book. Trinity Hall's head librarian was looking through the library's copy of Theatre of Insects or to give it its proper name, takes deep breath. Insectorum sive minimorum animalium teatrum. Oh, once again, the classics degree is coming to the fore. Well, you know what? I went, I tried to go there with a bit more of an ecclesiastical Latin rather than a classical Latin, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so she was looking through this book, this 385-year-old book, when she came across the pressed small tortoiseshell butterfly between its pages. Now, the book is a compendium of insect natural history, and it was published in 1634, but was donated to Trinity Hall in the 1990s. So the college says that the butterfly could have been placed there any time between those two dates. So that's a pretty big margin. It's amazing. It's still pretty colourful, but this doesn't necessarily give a good indication of its age because pressing a butterfly between pages like this can actually preserve its colour pretty well. The librarian Jenny Lecky Thompson noted that in the 17th century, this was an advised method of preserving insects. So it's not unreasonable to think that it could well have been there since then. Yeah, because I mean, for sort of the last hundred years or so, you think of insects being pinned, you know, back, mm. and back in Victorian times when, when collecting was a really big thing. People pin specimens to have them on display. And, and if you squashed it while it preserves it, it you, it's then not as good for pinning. So you'd think that if it was collected within the last 120 years, it's unlikely that someone would have pressed it to keep it. They'd be more likely to have pinned it. So, I don't know, makes you want to guess that it's probably older than that. But as you say, we've, yeah. we've got no real idea. It makes you think it's a collector, the fact that they've caught it at all. Yeah, and right? bothered to put it in a book. And bothered to put it. So you think it's a collector, but it's someone who's not pinning. That does suggest it's it's old. Yeah, or it's someone who did it totally ad hoc they weren't a collector they just found it and were like oh i've got that one and i'll put it in it's this and they just happened to kind of leave it in the page and it wasn't really a deliberate thing but it's not just any book and it's not just any page yes it's the page with the small tortoiseshell on it right exactly it's been pressed right next to the woodcut picture of the small tortoiseshell as if the book's owner had caught it and then preserved it next to the picture almost like those football sticker books people used to have as kids you know as collector's items yeah i suppose there are ways that you could work out roughly how old it is like comparing it to natural history collections or DNA analysis, but I don't think there are any plans for this. It's it's a super cool finding, but probably not a priority for analysis. Yeah, I, I assume they've checked through the rest of the book to make sure that that wasn't what was going on. They, you know, they turn to the pages for every other species and they're going to find one of each of them and the person was just going through and it was literally like a sort of sticker book. 
I mean, I assume they've gone through the rest of it. You'd think so, wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> I mean, to think of all the times I've badly preserved flowers in books from one year to the next, and then this butterfly might have been preserved between these pages since the 17th century. It's just incredible. Mad, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Well, at the end of that round, you've got three out of five. Oh, that's that's solid. That's, yeah, not bad. Mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you knew the butterfly won the quickest. Yes. Playing true to my, form. My Twitter is a very uh, curated place. Journal Club. Right, so what paper are you bringing to the table this week? Well, are you familiar with Garura Kangaskani? Absolutely not. Ah, this is like animal etymology is reversed. Kangaskani? Yes. Sounds very kangaroo-like to me. does, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, that might become relevant. Okay, go ahead. So, G. kangaskani, or kangaskan, is an omnivorous diurnal vertebrate. It's native to Australia and is most commonly found in grasslands and savannas, although it has also been observed increasingly using metropolitan areas. Despite being reported as endemic to Australia, occasional sightings in Europe, Asia and the Americas suggest that the species might be capable of long-range dispersal, although it's possible that these are all escapees. Unfortunately, the main threat to wild Kangaskhan is poaching, with animals being captured for use in blood sports, where they are fought against other individuals of the same or different species. With millions of trainers and breeders worldwide, the demand for Kangaskhan shows no signs of slowing down. However... What? <laughs> Sorry, the look on your face. This is your... You're taking the mick. No. Okay. This, I, I, you have a terrible poker face. <laughs> <laughs> right, carry on. All right. It's possible that climate change may pose an additional threat to the survival of Kangaskhan. Despite the species' reasonably broad habitat tolerances, it shows an apparent preference for partly cloudy weather, which may lead to some level of climatic sensitivity, although the definition of partly cloudy is rather open to interpretation. This is like a riddle. So despite being heavily traded... Little is known about the wild distribution of Kangaskhan. Surprisingly, there are no verified georeference locations for Kangaskhan within any natural history collection databases, and the only available data set of occurrences comes from records made by poachers seeking Kangaskhan for exploitation rather than for conservation. Even then, the number of records is limited to just 37 observations, to be precise. Right. But with growing concern about the conservation of the species in the face of a booming international trade and impending climate change, Dan Warren and colleagues set out to try and model the current distribution of the species, identify its key requirements, and predict how it might fare in the future. Now, the problem facing researchers wishing to study and conserve Kangaskhan is actually pretty typical for many biologists and their study species. The full global range of the species is not known, meaning that we don't really have a complete picture of the environments which it's able to inhabit. Even within known areas, knowledge of the species' ecology is poor, making it difficult to predict how it will respond to change. There are some chance observations of the species outside of its native range, due to movement caused by people, and the species is absent from many areas within its historic range which it might previously have inhabited due to past habitat loss and hunting pressures. I'm really hoping some listeners have worked out what this riddle is, because I'm lost. <laughs> I don't know why you're so sceptical. I, I don't know why you think this is a riddle Because at you all. have a look on your face, like you're doing an April Fool's. But it's a bit late. Finally, the data which are available on its occurrences are scattered and were not collected as part of standardised ecological surveys, but have been compiled from available information collected for other means. All of this 
makes it difficult to study and conserve the species. However, over the last couple of decades, a range of statistical techniques have been developed which enable scientists to use this data with the aim of better understanding species ecology and informing their conservation. Species distribution models? You're so (laughs) sceptical! I just, I feel like I should have worked it out by now. Sorry, do carry on. Just engage in the science. There's, okay. there's nothing. There's nothing to work out here, and we're getting into the science. So, yeah, okay. so you're, you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to pay attention okay. to this bit. This okay. is where it. This is where it gets technical. Oh no! Right. Species distribution models enable researchers to draw conclusions about an animal or a plant's relationship with its environment, and when combined with climate circulation models and climate change projections, can be used to predict how a species might fare under environmental change. Species distribution models have become incredibly popular, and there are a wide range of models available, all with different pros and cons, and all designed for different types of datasets with different limitations. Similarly, there's a plethora of different climate models, which all make different assumptions about global circulation patterns, the importance of currents and jet streams, and the chemistry of the Earth and its atmosphere. So for a biologist wanting to use these models to understand how their species responds to its environment, there are lots of choices to make. This all just feels like a lot of you trying to put off me guessing what this animal is. No comment. (laughs) So, what Dan Warren and the team set out to do was to A, understand a bit more about the ecology of the Kangaskhan, and B, test how much influence the mere choice of models has on the results which they obtained. Does this mean I'm going to get some Kangaskhan ecology? I think I've given you all the Kangaskhan ecology. Maybe there's going to be some more Kangaskhan ecology. (laughs) Because of the limited knowledge about Kangaskhan ecology, the team were forced to make many decisions in the modelling process based simply on common practice rather than biological theory. Because they were unable to narrow down the options based on any kind of strong ecological knowledge, they chose to include all of the available environmental variables. And without standardised survey data recording where Kangaskhan do and do not occur, they had to make guesses about which areas Kangaskhan are likely to be absent from. They then fitted a whole range of models, which is pretty good practice for testing the consistency of predictions between different model assumptions. So what was particularly interesting about this paper is that the team then compared their results for Kangaskhan to a load of pretend species for which a previous paper had constructed known ecological relationships. But I think Kangaskhan is not real. How dare you doubt me? <laughs> How, I... <laughs> okay. The point is that these are fake species, but they've deliberately selected the locations that the species occur in. So, so what they, they've, they've back-created a species. Okay. So they've taken a load of habitat variables and they've said, if a species has this habitat requirement, where would it be found? Okay. And it would be found okay. here and it would be found here. Yeah. And, th- and therefore, if you then build, you're then building the model based on known information. Yeah, so they yeah. can kind of go, we know that this is where it should be. And can our model predict that? That's what I mean by these fake species here with known relationships. And they also compared it with results that were based on randomly chosen data points from within the study area. What they found was interesting. The predicted changes in habitat suitability for Kangaskhan varied depending on the type of model used. Some models predicted decreases in habitat suitability, others predicted increases, and the size of these increases and decreases varied a lot. Interestingly, when they compared the results for the pretend species and the random data points, they found a general pattern for certain types of models to always predict in the same direction. So some always predicted declines and others always predicted increases. And the variation in the predictions got bigger as the projections were made further into the future, 
even for those pretend species whose habitat associations were known and for which the availability of some of their required habitat was remaining constant under those different models. So there wasn't really any reason why they should be predicted to decline or increase, Mm. and yet the models were suggesting that they were going to. So does this tell us something about species distribution models in general? Yes, absolutely. That's, That's the point. So because the input data are limited, there's a lot of scope for biases which are caused by the assumptions of the models to become more important to the predictions than the data themselves. Mm. So one clear example of this is where there are insufficient data points to allow the model to accurately understand how the species responds to its current environment. This produces a poor model, and that means that it probably won't be very good at making predictions. So that's something we need to be aware of, right? Yeah, that's something that's, that's really important for understanding when you're using these models. So in addition to this, models are often used to predict into the future when environmental variables are expected to have changed and may be different from what was put into the original model. So for example, if the data in a model only included temperature data up to, say, 30 degrees, if the environment is then predicted to reach up to 40 degrees in the future, the model has no real idea what's going on. And what you'd hope is that a good model would display that uncertainty. But if the model is built poorly because the data's weak it ends up kind of guessing and it's not giving you any kind of informed idea of what might happen to that species at 40 degrees. You know, it, it's guessing, but the response that you see because it plots a pretty map is that, you know, there's some level of certainty there and there's really not. And as you've suggested, this is quite a big problem because these models are widely used for conservation planning, either to identify where a species is likely to be threatened by environmental change or to find areas within its current range where it's most likely to persist or to look for places that have become newly suitable, which could be targets for something like translocation. Mm. So if this is done using these poor quality models, we may not be making very good conservation decisions. Interesting. But before we get all doom and gloom about this, I should point out that the authors chose Kangaskan for this for a good reason. Because it's not real. No, because the small availability of data, which was not collected in a standardised way, and probably doesn't reflect the true habitat requirements of the species. So this is kind of the prime example of something which is going to be susceptible to all of these biases, and for which we should be much more cautious about whether or not we choose to use these kind of models to make predictions. Yeah, yeah. But while this is quite commonly done, it's certainly not the case for all species. And there are many situations where robust models can be fitted and used to make decent predictions, either because we have a good availability of data or we know a lot about the species and we can inform our models much more accurately. And the other important thing is that Warren and colleagues have provided us with another way which it's possible to actually test how good a model is. And that might help us to improve conservation by being better able to distinguish a good model from a poor model. What about being able to distinguish a fake species from a real species? Okay, so at this point, I should probably point out the other reason why the authors chose Kangaskhan and the reason why I chose to do this study today. Is it a Pokemon? Oh, four lines from the end and she's worked it out. (laughs) Whilst modelled on an omnivorous diurnal vertebrate, Kangaskhan is in fact Australia's only endemic Pokemon. Yes. And while this paper does make some excellent and valid scientific points, it was also published on the first day of this month. April oh, Fool! nice, nice, nice. Right, okay, so I was just thinking, what is this species which is traded and fought for sport that I've never heard of? And I was like, wait a minute. 
way. I was a kid in the 90s. Yeah. I remember. I had Pokemon cards. Yeah. Hid all the little clues up, up near the top. Exactly. But these days... People actually have the app on their phone, right? Pokemon Go, is yep. it? So you can literally go anywhere and trade and fight Pokemon. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah. And a, a load of references in this paper actually come from Pokemon literature. Brilliant. So, so they talk about, there's a thing called Bulbapedia, which I, I guess... Like Bulbasaur. Comes, like Bulbasaur. Yeah. Um, and I guess is a Wikipedia for Pokemon. And they, they reference... I think my favourite thing is the fact they reference the, the fact that there's no signs of collection of Pokemon halting because the whole catchphrase around Pokemon is go, go catch, catch them, them all. all. They also suggest that a further course of study would be to send the authors to some remote parts of Australia to go and see if they can collect some more reliable data on Kangaskhan, which but, sounds like a good excuse excellent. for a I'm behind that. I'm 100% behind that. Yes. All in all, good science, but with a bit of silliness. That's what we're here for. We are here for that. What's your paper this week? Well, I feel like when things crop up multiple times in this podcast, it's because they're really great subjects that deserve the attention. Right? Is it another asteroid? It's, it's, it's the third asteroid. Please, somebody stop me. No. But I would say those things tend to be Mars rovers, cats, space junk, probably now asteroids, and octopuses yes yes now i think the last time we spoke about octopuses was in our punching nemo episode where we heard that octopuses sometimes punch fish just out of spite but today i'm going to be revealing a more wholesome relatable side to octopuses unless of course you dear listener punch people out of spite in which case i'm sure that was relatable before and you know this maybe is further away from your experiences uh, to be honest, I thought octopuses punching things was, was relatable. I could be that grumpy sometimes. <laughs> well, did you know they might also be dreamers? Ooh. And I don't mean idealists. I mean actually engaging in active sleep and potentially having dreams like we do. I did not. Mm. But are you surprised? Not really. I mean, they're, they're, they're clever very creatures. clever. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know whether this is true, but I'd sort of naively think that dreaming is something that goes along with kind of having a lot of brain power so i mean you've heard the dreams i have that's definitely not true <laughs> well the susan medeiros and colleagues have just published a paper in iScience titled cyclic alternation of quiet and active sleep states in the octopus where they recorded footage of four octopuses in the lab over the course of a few days and then used quantitative video analysis to look at whether the octopuses show different types of sleep side note in the supplementary material to this paper, which is open access, so anyone can look at it. Is there a video of an octopus there sleeping? Is, there are so many videos of octopuses sleeping. Oh my this is god, great. yes. Just, just go for that alone. Do octopuses snore? Not that I know of. Oh. Maybe we should ask them, maybe we should tweet them about that. Yeah, sound on. Yeah, so it was previously thought that octopuses might engage in sleep as we know it, because just like us, and this is super cute, they find a preferred resting place... They assume a typical posture with their heads down and their arms curled around their bodies. Oh! <laughs> and they go really still, except for a few random jerky movements. But, That's amazing. I know. <laughs> not the cutest thing you've heard all week. But some researchers still thought that maybe this wasn't true sleep. It was just periods of rest where they were actually still alert. So this study set out to work out what was going on. 
To understand how footage could be so useful, it's important first to know that many species of cephalopods, including the octopus species used in this study, Octopus insularis, are able to change the colour and texture of their skin on demand. So you can tell a lot about their physical status just by looking at them. The researchers' footage showed that octopuses actually undergo two distinct phases of sleep. One where they're very still and their skin is pale and their pupils are closed, what the researchers termed quiet sleep. Essentially, they look like they're asleep. They're doing nothing. And it looks like their eyes are closed. And then there was another phase where their skin changes colour and texture dynamically and their eyes move rapidly. The researchers called this active sleep. That's so weird, though, because they're using colour for camouflage and stuff. Yeah. So you'd think that being asleep but changing colour and texture would be like a, you know, come and get me signal I know, it's bizarre, isn't it? That's so it's absolutely bizarre. But then the question remains, how do they know that this isn't just rest versus being awake? Well, this is actually the issue with the previous studies. Just by looking at the octopus, you can't tell. So they also filmed the octopuses when, during the two phases of sleep, They put in front of them a video of crabs moving about. Octopuses love crabs. Octopuses love eating crabs. And when octopuses are definitely awake, they react to the videos by trying to grab the crabs. But in both of these passive and active sleep phases, the octopuses didn't react to the crab videos, showing that they weren't alert, they were asleep. That's really cool. But I also really like the methods of this, where essentially the researchers were sneaking up to a sleeping octopus <laughs> to put a video in front of like, like trying to creep up on anything that's sleeping is, you know, like Suki is a really light sleeper. So if you try to creep through the lounge when she's asleep and as you approach her, she will invariably wake up. But I've just imagined them trying to do that with an octopus and just sort of slowly sliding <laughs> the screen into <laughs> You know, so I assumed that they'd already had like screens set up around the tank that they would just pop some videos on but i do love the idea that they just like silently rollerbladed in with ipads (laughs) okay that probably makes more sense for some reason i was imagining this happening in the wild (laughs) no no this is a lab what a scuba diver just comes down with an ipad encased in plastic like hey hey you want to see these crabs yeah yeah basically yeah that's that's literally what i was imagining (laughs) So another thing that's super cool about this, other than just the study in general is awesome, is it's quite reminiscent of the REM or rapid eye movement sleep that mammals, birds and some reptiles exhibit. So we know that when we go to sleep at night, we'll have what's known as an ultradian sleep cycle, which means that we'll go through phases of slow wave and REM sleep. In REM sleep, our bodies are paralysed, but our eyes dart about, usually under our eyelids, although I did once have a sleepover with a girl at school who slept with her eyes open, but that's another story entirely. That's creepy. That was very creepy. But usually people have their eyes closed, so you can't really tell. And it's thought that these periods of REM sleep are where we have most of our dreams. So, does this mean that octopuses dream during their periods of rapid eye movement sleep? Maybe. Basically, we don't know, unfortunately, because nobody can ask them. But speaking to New Scientist, the paper's last author, Siddhartha Ribeiro, concluded, if the octopus is having something like a dream, it's probably a very short behavioural sequence. It's not a narrative. Whether they're having some sort of inner life with a narrative about themselves, we don't know. So this leaves open the big question. Are octopuses dreaming about punching fish? (laughs) I really hope so. (laughs) Animal Etymologies 
This week, my animal etymology was inspired by a news article I read. So it was really touch and go whether it would end up here or in Science of the Week. Can you tell me what Lulcalcan aliocranianus is? Um, that is a mouthful. It uh, is. That's what it is. No, I mean, I can hear a word that sounds a bit like cranium mm-hmm. in the second part. Mm-hmm. So something to do with a brain. But otherwise, yeah, I've not got very much from that. It's a newly discovered species of dinosaur found in Argentina. Have you got any guesses what the name means? Do you think it's got something to do with a brain, a skull? Yeah, no, there's nothing in the Lucalcan that I recognise. Well, there's a reason for that. For once, this name is not entirely from Latin or Greek, which I'm happy about because although Latin and Greek were traditionally the default for scientific naming, there are actually lots of scientific names now which derive from languages local to a species discovery. Lokalkan means one who scares or causes fear in Mapadungan, the language of the Mapuche, who are a group of indigenous inhabitants of present-day south-central Chile and southwestern Argentina. Aliocranianus, on the other hand, means different skull in Latin. Okay, so cranium was right. Yeah, exactly. The alio bit means other or different, and the cranianus exactly relates to skulls. So the reason why it's different skull is because the skull morphology is a little different to other closely related species already discovered. So for one thing, it has cavities in the ear area, which likely gave it a superior sense of hearing, which would have made it a more formidable predator. So going back to the one who causes fear, when you see an artist's impression of what the dinosaur may have looked like, the name becomes pretty self-explanatory. It walked around on two legs with stubby arms, just like a T-Rex, but it was smaller than a T-Rex. So the researchers think it was about five metres long, whereas a T-Rex was about 12 metres long. But despite its slightly more diminutive stature, it would have packed a mean bite. It had strong jaws, a large head with bony protrusions like little horns, and long claws on those teeny tiny little stumpy hands. Oh, so the so the hands might have done something. Then. Yeah, 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 they could well have done. Add on to that the fact that it had excellent hearing, and you probably wouldn't want to challenge it to a fight. Luckily for us, it lived around 80 million years ago, so you don't need to worry about going up against this beast, because, let's be honest, it would certainly cause a bit more than fear for me. Isolation Recommendations So when we were chatting about our isolation recommendations for this week, we actually both came up with pretty much the same suggestion, which was essentially get outside, which is a bit woolly. But what we've been really enjoying recently is using apps to learn more about nature. And really, this is the best time of year for that. So I use iNaturalist, essentially just because I was recommended it by a colleague. But it's so much fun and it's so slick. It's free and you just take a photo of anything out in nature. I mainly do plants because they stay still and they're easier to identify. And then once you've taken a photo, the app will give you an automatic suggestion for what it thinks it might be just based on the photo. And then you can record it with your best guess or the app's best guess, which is remarkably spot on. But if you're not sure, then people in your local area can see your record and suggest what they think it might be. I've learned so many wildflowers using this app And it's also a way of gamifying nature for anyone who just kind of knows they should go outside but can't quite get the motivation up. This is something that you're relatively new to as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So a couple of weeks ago, I helped out with an event run by the Cambridge Conservation Research Institute as part of the Cambridge Festival to help people get involved in citizen science. And this event was focused on using a different app called iRecord, which is another site where you can submit wildlife sightings. And the advantage of this one is that it goes straight to the local biodiversity record centre for verification. 
and inclusion in national monitoring. So the downside of iRecord that we found relative to iNaturalist is that iNaturalist was a bit quicker to use and and upload. Mm. But the reason that we used iRecord for this event was because it was the one that the record centre said they preferred because they had the the kind of direct link to it. So for in, in terms of having records that can then go into monitoring schemes and stuff and potentially inform conservation and planning, this was probably the one to go for. But I mean, you know, if you're doing it sort of for fun and interest, then both are going to be good. But essentially, it's the same kind of thing. You you can take photos of what you see while you're out and about. You can have a go at identifying it and you can have your ID checked by experts. And if you're not sure what you've seen, you can submit the picture and label it as uncertain. And that label can be even just to a broad group. So you can put flowering plant or deer if you're not very sure what the species is. And the experts will pick it up and ID it for you. In fact... As part of the event, my colleague Matt Hayes produced a video explaining how to use iRecord, which we can put a link to in the episode description for people to check out if they want to. Yeah, I will say as well, there are more than just the two apps that we're talking about. These are just ones that we, we've particularly found useful. So yeah, iRecord obviously has links to research. iNaturalist also does share particularly good photos with the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. But yeah, if you're not interested in that, I know some of my friends use Picture This as well. I think that one's free. So essentially, you could sort of just look at a few free ones and see what you prefer. Yeah. I'm I'm big up iNaturalist myself. I'm on Team iNaturalist. Yeah, I've got to say, actually, for using it in the field to kind of find out what you're looking at, that was definitely the quickest to use. And I think there are also... There are other ones that are sort of dedicated to specific groups. All of these kind of cover anything. But I've, I know other people have used ones that are sort of specifically designed for wildflowers um, or whatever. So if you're if you're into a particular group, then, you know, maybe they have advantages if they, they help you to kind of narrow down an idea a bit quicker. Yeah, I basically I think this is a really great idea for if you want to go outside, but you want some kind of something to guide you, a little bit more purpose. You want to learn something at the same time. Yeah. Get out there in the spring. I mean, right now, the UK seems to be going from snow to heat wave. So, you know, take advantage of those sunny periods and get out there. Yeah. I mean, even while it's been cold the last couple of days, it's been really nice weather. Like, it's bright and sunny. And the great thing about this time of year is, like, pretty much every time you go out, you'll find that something's changed and there's, there's something new to look at. So go and explore and take a nap with you. Well, it's nearly time to finish, but before we go, remember, as always, that you can get in touch with us between episodes. You can follow us on Instagram at Lockdown Science Podcast, on Twitter at Lockdown Science, and you can also email us at lockdownsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And as a treat, we have just uploaded a photo onto our Instagram, which is a flashback to me and Suki in 2004. I mean, I just look like a kid, but Suki is an absolutely adorable screaming kitten with all the sass that she has continued to embody to this day. So if you want to see the early days of the star behind this podcast, then do check that out. And why not give us a follow at the same time? Yeah, we discovered the baby photo for both of them last week and we decided that it'd be quite fun to recreate it and see if we could get the same thing. And it's, it's noticeable that, you know, both of them have grown in that time. Both, both of them have, have aged, but both of them basically just look just look as cute and adorable as before oh thank you i see you know i just look at it and i just go oh the aging process it's been so much kinder to the cat <laughs> <laughs> i don't know she's become a big fuzzy lump and so have i <laughs>
And as always, it would be great if you could show the podcast some love on Apple Podcasts. If you've enjoyed the show, please search Lockdown Science on there and give us a five-star rating and review. Let us know what you like about the show or just post a love letter to Suki. We're not fussy. She doesn't really need the ego inflation, but to be fair, we ride on the coattails of her reputation, so it's probably only right. Well, that's about it for today, but tune in in two weeks' time for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. FM.